Welcome to Global Dispatches. I am your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this podcast, we discuss topical global issues and we go deep with foreign policy thought leaders and celebrities who discuss their life and career. South Sudan is in a tailspin. On July 9th, the country commemorated its fourth anniversary of independence, but it was hardly a celebration. Since December 2013, the country has been in a freefall, stemming from when a political dispute between President Salva Kiir and his rival Riek Machar turned into open conflict and civil war. Millions have been forced from their homes, a famine might loom over the country, and there's really no end in sight. Here to help explain how things went so badly so quickly for this young country is Rebecca Hamilton. She's the author of the book Fighting for Darfur and is a professor at Columbia Law School and is a one-time guest host of this very podcast. She filled in on episode 35, interviewing the development economist Scott Guggenheim. Rebecca does a great job of explaining the wider regional context of this conflict and also discusses how a government that was once championed by the USA fell out of favor with the Obama administration. We recorded this conversation for an episode of Blogging Heads, so the style is a little bit different than my typical interview. And if you actually want to see Rebecca and I speak to each other, you can go to bloggingheads.tv. For now, though, here is my conversation with Rebecca Hamilton. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Cause was essentially a leadership battle between two men, uh, the president of South Sudan, Salva Kiir, and uh, the man who had, until the middle of 2013, been his vice president, Riyak Mashar. Uh, these two men have extremely long histories, um, very fraught histories. Um, and there was, uh, earlier in 2013, React's decision that he would challenge Salva Kiir for the leadership of South Sudan. Uh, Salva Kiir preempted that by actually firing him um, from his vice presidency position. And I think to really understand um, the significance of that, you do have to understand a bit more about the history of these two men, uh, because during the decades-long war, Uh, between what is now Sudan and what is now South Sudan, uh, but at the time was a unified Sudan. Uh, Salva Kiir was uh, key within the leadership of the SPLM, uh, which was headed by a man that that a number of your listeners know, John Garang, the sort of founder. And the SPLM, you should say, was like the main political and military movement for independence of South Sudan. Right, was and remains so to this very day. 
um, which is one of the problems, in fact, in the current situation. Um, now, at some point, Riyak Mashar, who is also a southerner, defected from that SPLM movement, um, set off with his own rebel movement, and was responsible for many atrocities against uh, civilians. And there's an ethnic dimension to this. Riyak Mashar is from the Nuer ethnic group. Salvakir is from the Dinka ethnic group. These are the two uh, main ethnic groups in South Sudan, although there are very many more. Um, so the idea at independence by having a government that would have a president, Kier Adinka, in the presidency, uh, Vice President Riyak Mashar and Nuer as the vice president, it was sort of a, a coalition government in that sense against the history. Um, so the idea that Salva Kiir would uh, fire essentially Riyak Mashar brought to the forefront uh, this history of animosity and um, all of the ethnic disputes that had never been properly resolved before independence and led to a lot of fear out in the communities. I mean, this was all happening in the capital in Juba, but but it filtered out throughout um, the communities across South Sudan of what did this mean? Um, did this mean that the, the Dinka were going to take over um, South Sudan? This is one of these sort of terrible rumors that you hear from, from time to time when people uh, start to get nervous. Um, and I think also related to it was the fact that people didn't yet trust the government, that they didn't yet trust that the government was there to protect them. Um, and probably for good reason, because even, right. you know, since independence, there had been, you know, general lawlessness, like the government has not been able to extend itself far beyond Juba, right? That's exactly I mean, right. Um, so, it, so it was an, a, to a totally um, appropriate mistrust uh, and a mistrust that, as it turns out, um, has been unfortunately verified. Um, so there was there was all this history, um, and what you had was uh, finally um, the the complete split and the and the breakaway between uh, Riyak Mashar and his supporters um, and Salvakir. And in December 2013, uh, we spoke soon after that. I'm sure it it looked like maybe this would be sort of a a political or a leadership challenge that could be resolved. Uh, at the negotiation table, but instead it just spiraled out and out and out. And all the old um, factions from from during the long civil war reared their ugly heads once and, again. And so now we're in a situation where there's, you know, something like 2 million people displaced, um, something like 100, this is actually kind of astonishing, like 100,000 uh, South Sudanese are now sheltered at UN bases. There's a pretty sizable uh, UN contingent, uh, UN peacekeeping contingent in South Sudan that's basically, um, at, at this point, hasn't, had, you know, it's not robust enough to go out and stop the fighting, but at least it's sort of sheltering civilians that are huddled in its camp, which is sort of an unusual position. I mean, for it's actually, it, it's incredible because that was not in, as part of their mission at all. This was not established as a, as a protection of civilians mission, although, you know, query whether perhaps it should have been. Um, but I think, you know, we, we, um, the, there's a lot of criticism to be made often of the UN, but this is a case where they've gone above and beyond and they haven't been able to do it well because they were never established to do that in South Sudan um, and they haven't had the supplies and the resources and the personnel to do a great job 
Um, but when faced with the choice of there are civilians who are outside our base camp and they're asking to be brought in for their own protection, do we keep the doors shut? Because that's what I, you know, we, we don't have any sort of formal responsibility to do more right here and now. Or do we open the doors in and, and do as, as good as we can? And that's what they've done. Um, and I think the individuals on the ground um, who are working for the UN need to be applauded for that. That said, um, because these were never set up as uh, displacement camps, uh, the conditions there are far from what we would want if we were designing this from the bottom up. So one thing I've been wanting to ask you is how the relationship between Salva Kiir and the United States government, the members of the, the Obama administration, have soured so dramatically so quickly. I mean, you had this great series around the time of South Sudan's independence, which did some really incredible reporting uh, around how a pretty small cadre of, uh, at the time, Obama administration officials really helped give birth and, and provided really important momentum behind South Sudan's independence. And some of these members are very high-ranking uh, Obama administration officials. I mean, like Susan Rice, the national security advisor, or Gail Smith, who's about to lead USAID. Um, but now the relationship between Salva Kiir and the Obama administration seems so, so sour. Um, I, I saw this report, or, or I've, I don't know, I don't know if you saw it. There's this like YouTube video that Susan Rice uh, made on the occasion of South Sudan's fourth anniversary, and where she just like laid into the guy that she was formerly championing. Championing. So what what exactly happened, and and how did this relationship turn so bad so quickly? Okay, so I want to I want to sort of pick this apart a little bit. Yeah, um, please to do. To say that the, the the sort of champions of of the independent South Sudan that you're talking about that I that I reported on in that Reuters piece, um, who who very much include Susan Rice and Gail Smith, um, their their history goes back twenty years. So I mean, yes, they're with the Obama administration now, but their um, commitment to South Sudan and the cause of South Sudan independence isn't. Uh, I wouldn't characterize it as an Obama as having been an Obama administration position. That had been their personal position across every administration um, over the last sort of two decades. Um, and the personal relationships there are extremely close. And I think it is entirely appropriate um, for Susan Rice to be taking the view of we supported you. Um, we believed in you, we, we helped you get the independence um, that you were after and that you had always sold as, and she doesn't say this in so many words, but, but had always been sold as um, being able to differentiate yourself from the appalling governance and abuse of own citizens that was happening by the Sudanese government. Now, for you to get into power, and then to be doing these same sorts of things against your own Southern Sudanese citizens, that, that was not the deal that they signed up for. Um, and so, you know, you can call that a, a souring of the relationship a, totally appropriately so. And I think that she and, and others in that set would not be being good friends, as it were, to the people of South Sudan, um, unless they were calling out the Southern Sudanese leadership in the same way that they have called out the Sudanese le leadership over time. Now, I'm distinguishing that group from 
President Obama himself, um, who simply never had that long history uh, with South Sudan, um, who, and I, I haven't interviewed him directly, so I, I can't give you a sort of a personal read on that, but, but everything that I have um, spoken to other people about vis-a-vis him suggests that he didn't feel that same level of commitment uh, to the new nation of South Sudan, not in that really deep way uh, that the others who had followed it through the long civil war felt. Um, and I think he was always, um, and perhaps more appropriately so, um, willing to just see Salva Kiir and others in the leadership play it out on the merits. And I think if they had um, made the right moves and really committed to solid governance structures um, and to really showing the people of South Sudan that their government, their new government could be trusted, um, then he would have absolutely stayed on board with the project. And there was uh, this famous incident, right? I, I think it must have been 2010 or 2011 at the United Nations, right, where where uh, Salva Kiir at a special forum on South Sudan that uh, Barack Obama attended during the you know UN week, the General Assembly summit, uh, where he sort of caught Salva Kiir in a lie, right? That that. Uh, you, you probably know the details of this better than I do, but the gist is Salva Kiir said he didn't have troops somewhere where the U.S. satellite imagery proved that he did. Right. And and so that has been subsequently um, kind of uh, noted as one of those kind of totem moments. Um, you know, you don't lie to President Obama. Um, so there, it, I think it just speaks generally to there not having been that long personal history uh, between the two of them in the way Regardless, that though, there like, had been. Yeah. I mean, either way, like, you know, I I think, you know, policy is largely driven by, like, interests, not personalities. So at at some point... Oh, both, both. Or both. Okay. Well, we could have, like, a (laughs) theoretical debate. But at at some point, though, um, Salva Kiir, um, or I think it's indisputable that Salva Kiir has behaved progressively more like a brutal autocrat uh, and more like, you know... Uh, countries like Eritrea than he has like the the Democrat that um, perhaps Susan Rice and others had wished he had become. So why has not the Obama administration or the United States government or the international community been able to constrain Salva Kiir's actions in any any meaningful way or compel him to behave in in a certain way? Right. So you know, number one, they're trying, but coming at it late. So we're only this year, we're in 2015. This has been happening since 2013. Um, only this year are sanctions, targeted sanctions starting to come online. So you had that um, earlier this month from the UN Security Council uh, and separately um, from the US also. So targeted sanctions actually not just against um, what we might call Salva Kiir's side, so the government of South Sudan side, um, but also uh, the Riyak Mashar uh, contingent, which is now called uh, the SPLM in opposition, SPLM-IO. Um, so you are starting to see sanctions of, of individual leaders, uh, but it's very late in the day. And I think neither side has yet hit the point where they are sure that they can't win this militarily. And I fear that having um, expanded to the point where now, as you say, we're heading towards two million displaced, um, it's very hard to start rolling back Mm -hmm. 
from that um, into sort of um, peacetime yeah. governance. I guess it's like the freedom uh, at which Salvakir seems to operate. Like here, for, for example, um, a few weeks ago, uh, the government of South Sudan kicked out the UN's top humanitarian coordinator, this guy named Toby Lanzer, over some tweets he wrote about the deteriorating humanitarian situation in South Sudan. Not like horrible accusatory tweet, just pointing out how bad things right. are got, how it's on the precipice right. of, of famine. And they, they kicked him out of the country, which is kind of – which is not something that like a responsible government does. They don't just like – revoke the visas of UN humanitarian personnel. He wasn't even a political guy. He was the guy trying to work the logistics of making sure that the World Food Program can get its aid to some far corner of the country. Right. I mean, they are so far from being a responsible government right now. You you can't even put them on that page. But the other the other aspect that's that is complicating all this is that this is not just about you know what does the U.S. think that it should do, and it has still um, because of those personal connections a large amount of leverage in the situation. But there are all the regional players also, and the AU in particular. Um, went forth and established its first commission of inquiry, which could have been a great thing. It looked at the atrocities that were being committed in South Sudan and was supposed to publicly release a report um, to start to bring some accountability to the situation. Instead, it decided that it would sit on that report. And so all efforts at accountability um, by other players in the system outside of the AU had kind of been put on hold. Uh, while the Commission of Inquiry was happening because it was like, okay, let's let's see the AU do its thing. It's taken responsibility. Um, that's, that's great. Um, but now that the report hasn't been released, I think there is some question of, well, who takes the lead next? Do we just keep pushing for the AU to release the report? Um, does somebody else have to generate a, an independent report, you know, that's separate from the AU. Um, so I think that just figuring out who takes the lead um, has also been complicated on this one. Um, another thing I want to ask you about is the, the question about how related is this situation, that this conflict in, in South Sudan unfolding right now, uh, how related is it to the political situation in Sudan proper, particularly the... Um, sort of the simmering conflict along in Sudan, but in the Nuba region right. along the border with, with South Sudan. Right. So yes, we you can you can see it as almost three conflicts, but the, or two overlapping conflicts, because there's everything that's happening inside of South Sudan, then there's an entire another set of conflicts happening inside Sudan. Um, and then on either side there are proxies and the governments on either side are funding rebels on the other side. And so this whole thing is facilitated um, by these cross-border alliances. Uh, so you had, as you were heading into independence, let me back up a moment. During, during the long civil war, you had the SPLM, the main uh, rebel party and, and future government party uh, of South Sudan, operating all throughout Sudan, the unified Sudan. And when Sudan separated and became its own nation, there were still those people who were working in what was now Sudan um, and not South Sudan. They became the SPLM North, is what we call them. Um, and they found common cause with the various rebels that had been uh, targeting 
the Sudanese government. Basically, like they wished that they could have seceded as well, right? Well, they would have. That's the people in the Nuba Mountains um, wanted some decentralized governance structure. The people working uh, for the SPLM in the north uh, just wanted to improve the governance structures in Sudan. If they were going to have to stay in Sudan, they didn't want to be part of South Sudan. Um, these are northerners, um, but they wanted a better system of governance. And they had common cause in that respect with the Darfuri rebels who had been fighting this cause for so many years. And they joined um, into an alliance called the SRF, the Sudan Revolutionary Front. There's a lot of a lot of acronyms here. Um, the Sudan, I'm following you. I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm with you. I'm with you. Okay. okay. So you have the Sudan Revolutionary Front, which is sort of a, a loose uh, umbrella of groups, rebel groups inside Sudan, who get funding and support from the government of South Sudan. In Juba, um, in part because of those alliances where they were formerly part of the SPLM, they fought with the South in the Long War. Um, so you have Salvakir and the government of South Sudan supporting those rebel groups in the north. In turn, you have in the south Riyadh Mashar's winter from the government of South Sudan, which is the SPLM. Um, in opposition, SPLM-IO, they are getting support from the government in Khartoum, uh, the Sudanese government. So both sides, the the stakes continue to amp up uh, because they're getting funding and support from the government on, the, on either side. Um, so that's another dimension of that that needs to be picked apart in order to um, bring the heat down on this conflict. You also have Uganda um, intervening on the side of the government of South Sudan and the rebels that it supports, um, which is a further complication. So in, 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 I guess another further complication is the question of, of oil exports, right? Like under the agreement in which South Sudan gained independence, it was supposed to export its oil through uh, Khartoum or, or through Sudan. Uh, yeah. But that has ceased, right? Well, that so that did cease, um, and then they they managed in, in mutual um, self interest to resume. Um, but I was just reading; I'm just looking at the figures that I was reading this morning from from 250 thousand barrels per day. Um, that was the pre conflict level. They're now down to 160 thousand barrels a day, and particularly for the South Sudanese government, 90 percent of their revenue comes from oil um, and they haven't put money into diversifying the economy at the moment they're in such conflict that they they just don't have the capacity to be doing that anyway um, but this in turn means that they can't do any of the things that would build the people's trust in the government um, that it would that would stop it being an attractive proposition for people to just go back to the ethnic militia groups that they know as a means of self-protection um, so, you know, all of this is, is tied up with, it, with um, every other part of it. But what is clear is that the foreign oil investors um, are very nervous about continuing operations in South Sudan. Some are pulling out or they're removing their foreign workers from the situation. And neither the southern Sudanese or even the Sudanese um, have enough of the technical expertise at this point to do it all themselves. Um, so the conflict is is having a huge impact on on oil production. So how is the the government able to fund its its war uh, against Riek Machar? 
so it's doing it's it's basically bankrupting itself into the future. It's it's pulling what it can from the existing oil reserves and trying to make um, contracts and and negotiated agreements with investors um, on the future promise of profits. Um, and just getting itself massively into debt, essentially, on, on that score. So it's it's highly irresponsible financially, um, in addition to all of the obvious humanitarian consequences. Uh, so earlier, you said that, that um, both sides at this point think that they can win on the ground. Um, and that's been sort of, um, well, that's undermined any prospects for negotiated peace settlements. And I know there have been these kind of fitful attempts at a, a, a peace agreement. Um, so how do you see this uh, playing out? How do you see the situation um, just just sort of evolving over the next few months or, or years? Honestly, I'm so pessimistic right now. Um, you know, we have an, another effort um, that's starting in, in early August, I think, to try once again to reach a peace agreement um, between the two sides. Um, but as I think I've, I've we've, we've discussed this in an earlier conversation, the problems are so much bigger than the immediate uh, political problem between uh, Riyadh Mashar and Sabakir. And the question really is, what is a new constitution for South Sudan going to look like? Is it going to be a multi-party constitution? Um, is there going to be a real commitment to democracy? And now with Sabakir having sort of bankrupted into the future South Sudan by um, using the oil money and, and the future oil money, um, to wage this war, um, what is the basis for an economy going forward? Um, so all of that looks pretty bleak. The, the thing that I would say on the plus side is this may be one of the very few crises in the world right now where the Security Council is actually quite united. Um, neither the US nor China uh, want to see this conflict ongoing. It serves neither of their interests. And so it's one of those those few places where the Security Council can actually come together and, and have a win by, by being um, on the one page. Um, so that gives me some sense of hope. Um, I do think there's a need to figure out at the global level who is taking what lead where, uh, because you do have the AU in there as a player. You also have EGAD, um, the regional bloc, um, that was so key in getting the 2005 Comprehensive Peace Agreement. Um, they're in there as well. Um, so there's a coordination problem um, at the global level, but at least there is not any um, core interests that are completely yeah. um, But then again, against. you can say that despite this high level of coordination at the international level, it's still a disaster. No, I think there's not. I don't think, I don't think there's enough coordination. I think what's great is that there, there are... Well, not, I mean, there are not opposing interests. Right. Um, I'm saying, like, as opposed to a situation like Syria, where the Security Council is is horribly right. paralyzed, there is not right. that same sort of paralysis because you know China, uh, which you referenced earlier. I mean, right. even though they're they're a key imp, uh, importer of oil from the region, they're on generally the same side as as the U.S. here. Right. Right. Look, yeah. it's, it's yes, you're right. You're right. It's it's depressing that even when our interests are aligned, we still mm -hmm. can't make progress. Um, good. Well, I, I thank you so much, Rebecca, for putting this all in in context and, and in focus. Yeah. Can I can I just finish off with one more thing, Mark? Yeah. Please do. I, please do. You know, reflecting on this because, as you know, I've been um, <laughs> very engaged on 
on these issues for a number of years now, and it just seems as though we, and this is not just the lawyer and me speaking, although that may be part of it, um, we do continue to just push accountability down the track. We put accountability aside to get the, ref the peace agreement, um, to get the South Sudanese referendum, um, and there was always a thought, well, once the two countries are separate, then perhaps we can um, deal with accountability and responsibility for so many of the atrocities that happened during the Civil War. Um, but it just keeps not happening. It's sort of never the right time. And yet, without there having been any resolution of those issues, we can't be surprised that there is so much um, mistrust and animosity um, at the local level and so much insecurity uh, so that when the leaders are not performing responsibly and, and sort of highlighting their better selves that could be there, um, that people do revert to old um, ethnically charged patterns and forms of protection. And that, what, that failure of accountability probably starts at the top, right, with a failure of uh, Bashir, who was indicted, the president of Sudan, who was indicted on, on war crimes charges right. many years ago from ever facing justice uh, at right. the International Criminal Court and, and seemingly evading it uh, at, at every turn. Right. And, but at least, you know, we have, we have um, an arrest warrant out for him. There's been some process. In South Sudan, there's been no process yet. Um, so I think that that is on the agenda for the coming years. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. Good to chat to you. All right. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca, for speaking with me. Thank you all for listening. Obviously, a very disturbing, intense, and pretty terrible situation. Uh, absolutely, we'll do more episodes on this in the future. Uh, as always, feel free to be in touch. Hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg, or send me an email via globaldispatchespodcast.com, where you can also peruse our robust archives. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye.